1912, and it's a rolling, rumbling time in London, England. Sure, if you read the newspapers, it seems like tensions among Europe's leaders are reaching a fever pitch that may or may not lead to a massive global conflict in a couple of years. But how can you worry on a night like this? The big smoke's not only buzzing with electricity, culture, Nickelodeons, and cars, it's buzzing with vitality. Speaking of vitality, a wealthy American man sits alone in the study of his lavish London home, doing the thing he's always doing, working out. It's what he's built his fortune on. No, not just his fortune, his life. At a time before anyone else was doing it, this brilliant, dedicated man became one of the world's first fitness gurus. And it's made him millions, raised him up from dirt poor, humble beginnings to the upper crust of the upper crust. His study is lined with photos of him with titans of industry, celebrities, world leaders, even the president of the United States. But that success doesn't come without a price. His wife, Mary, emaciated, stumbles into his study with their newborn daughter, Bernice. Bernice is sick, deathly ill, in fact. Mary begs for permission to call the doctors. But our millionaire fitness guru doesn't believe in doctors. In fact, he doesn't believe in much of anything in the way of medicine or science. He's developed his own system for people to stay healthy, one that involves starvation, extreme denial, exercise to the point of collapse, and pushing the human body to its limits. Case in point, his newborn daughter, Bernice. Most parents would simply call the doctor if their child was sick. Not this man. No, this man believes in his bones that the best way to cure an illness is to shock the body and toughen it up. So instead of finding medical advice, he grabs the sickly newborn, runs to the nearest bathroom, and dunks her in a bathtub filled with ice water. Over and over and over and over, he will make this child strong, powerful, a perfect physical specimen like himself. And while Bernice survives this particular traumatic and abusive experience, it is only the tip of the brutal and fanatical iceberg that is her father. Let us tell you a story. It's a story about a man born into terrible circumstances, abject poverty, an abusive alcoholic father, a loving but ill mother wasting away from consumption, orphaned and shuffled from indifferent family member to indifferent family member, sold, starved, neglected, and abandoned. It's a story about a man who, despite the world giving up on him, never gives up on himself and finds the strength and will to survive and thrive, in particular, in his own body. It's about a man who becomes, quote, the father of physical culture in America, the first fitness figure in our country's history. He dedicates his life to preaching the gospel of mens sana and corpore sano, a healthy mind in a healthy body. And in the pursuit of a healthy body, he loses his healthy mind. It's a story about a man who wants so badly to be remembered, loved, wanted, that all sense of propriety and morality is thrown out the window. A man who starts as a bodybuilder and becomes a multimillionaire publisher, promoter, proselytizer, and politician, all on the back of pseudoscientific claims, dangerous diet and exercise fads, and outright lies about the medical community that harm countless people. It's a story of Bernard McFadden, America's first fitness guru, a man who believes so deeply in his own misguided advice that it eventually kills him. 
but why? What inspires this man to believe and prescribe such dangerous practices regarding health? We'll get to that. All you need to know now is Bernard McFadden lives for perfection. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Mill Springs, Missouri, 1872. A four-year-old Bernard McFadden plays with his sister outside their two-room Ozark home while their mother Mary watches. And no, by the way, we are not mispronouncing his name. Bernard McFadden is born Bernard McFadden and changes his name as an adult because Bernard sounds like a lion's roar. He decides this later in life, but to be less confusing, we'll just call him Bernard the whole way through. That's actually not a bad idea. Maybe we should add a couple of extra R's to the end of Wiser. Wiser. Mm, I, I think we're good. Gotcha. Bernard is a weak and sickly child. On several occasions, he recalls overhearing his parents whisper the words consumption or tuberculosis in the other room while he lies in bed trying to sleep. His mother, Mary, loves her children dearly and cares for them as best she can. But she too is prone to illness and their relative poverty doesn't help. Following the Civil War, Missouri is in an economic crisis, and those hardships fall most squarely on the backs of its most desperate citizens. But civil war debts and political strife are far from a boy like Bernard's mind. He just wants the things that all little boys want. Food, fun, a family that loves him. Unfortunately, Bernard's life is different, especially when it comes to his father. William McFadden, when sober is a gregarious, well-liked man in Mill Springs. The problem is that he is rarely sober. He spends most of his time hunting, betting on horses, and drinking, and occasionally endures his wife and children for a few hours at a time. Those hours are unpleasant for all involved. Young Bernard can't understand why his father doesn't want him, why he'd rather be anywhere else, doing anything else. Mary knows the truth. This has nothing to do with Bernard, or his sister, or herself. And just like William's problems have nothing to do with them, their solution can't have anything to do with William. So in 1873, Mary takes her children, packs up their things, and leaves. She moves herself and her children into her parents' house and sues William for divorce, a serious decision to make in 1873 Missouri. But it has no real bearing on their lives. Mary and the kids don't see William again, and he dies a year later of delirium tremors as a result of his alcoholism. Mary tries her best to help Bernard adjust to life without a father, but it's difficult. He has a near-death experience at seven when a botched smallpox inoculation leaves him bedridden with a blood infection for nearly six months. Upon recovering, he's bullied relentlessly by his peers for being small, for being a sickly pipsqueak, for being a, quote, mama's boy. And a person can't help but think how that goes on to affect Bernard later on in life. You spend your most formative childhood years being laughed at for being weak, being made to believe that what you are isn't good enough, and it's hard to forget something like that. Bernard never does. But there's something more devastating on the horizon for him. Mary, Bernard's mother, has consumption. 
tuberculosis as we know it today. And it's a death sentence in the 19th century. She'll hang on for far longer than anyone expects her to. But the hard truth of her condition sets in quickly. She simply cannot take care of two children, let alone one boy as sickly and needy as Bernard. So Mary makes a painful and to her unavoidable choice. She gives her children away. Bernard is shipped off to a boarding school, whose name is unknown, but which McFadden later in life refers to as, quote, the orphan's home or the starvation school, rather interchangeably. By his own account, the school is a terrifying place that makes the orphanage and Oliver Twist look like the Four Seasons. The headmaster serves the boys peanuts, at the time a food reserved for hog feed, for nearly every meal, except for when family members or the school's directors come to visit, of course. That's when the headmaster lays out a feast to keep up appearances. Eventually, Bernard's mother, Mary, rescues him from this place and brings him home. But it's only for a short while. Her condition is rapidly deteriorating, and she needs to find a better, more permanent solution for her son. Bernard is abandoned again, brought to live with relatives who own a hotel in Mount Sterling, Illinois, 250 miles north of his hometown of Mill Springs. The place is dreary and depressing, and Bernard is worked to the bone by his aunt and uncle falling into bed each night from pure exhaustion. And then Bernard's aunt and uncle receive devastating news. Boy, I've got some news for you. His uncle says glibly, your mother's dead. As the news rocks nine-year-old Bernard like a hurricane, his aunt chimes in. (laughs) And this one's going to be going soon too, if you ask me. He grows to hate his aunt, not just because of this callousness, but her severe obesity, with which he grows up to associate all manner of evil. Bernard mourns his mother deeply, and he's terrified for his own health, convinced by his aunt's cruel words that he will soon die of his mother's consumption too, that somehow his relation to her has condemned him to an even earlier grave. He continues to work, day in and day out at the hotel, awaiting his morbid fate. But Bernard McFadden doesn't die. In fact, it's his aunt and uncle's hotel business that withers away instead. After months of dwindling guests, the couple quits the hospitality business, and they have no more use for Bernard. With limited options, they turn to a local farmer they know over in Macomb, Illinois, named Robert Hunter, who had expressed interest in the past in adopting a son. They sell Bernard to him for a small amount of cash and, quote, a smattering of mixed produce. Bernard is, again, abandoned. After being abandoned so many times and with no real family to speak of, Bernard becomes convinced that the only person he can rely on is himself. And that means making sure his body is as healthy as humanly possible. Bernard takes to life on a farm almost immediately, churning butter, tending to livestock, and caring for his adoptive father's two other young children. His muscles swell. His endurance grows. He remains small in stature, but pound for pound, Bernard starts to see himself become a strong young man. It's here that he synthesizes three of his core beliefs about fitness, all of which come from his own tragic personal experience. Vaccines are dangerous, evidenced by almost dying from an early version of a smallpox inoculation. Starvation makes the body strong, evidenced by his time at boarding school, and the importance of efficient hard work, evidenced by his time on the farm. For the first time, Bernard McFadden starts to believe in himself, he sees the reality that he can transform his body into anything he wants it to be with enough determination and effort. He grows to enjoy his time on Robert Hunter's farm, 
loving the fresh produce and fresh milk, two foods that he will tout as vital to physical health for the rest of his life. But life on the farm isn't perfect by any means. Robert Hunter, his new adoptive father, is, by many accounts, the stingiest son of a, you know, east of the Mississippi, refuses to pay him any more than room and board for his work, and he complains about the amount of food he eats. After one final argument, Bernard decides that it's time to strike out on his own. So he waits for a moonless night, slips out of his bedroom, and runs away. Eventually, Bernard winds up in St. Louis to live with his ailing grandmother and two uncles. Upon arrival, though, he's surprised to find something he hasn't ever found, a family that actually wants him. Bernard goes to work in his Uncle Harvey's dry goods store, where his physical strength, as well as his acuity for math and love for reading, serve him well. He thrives there, with everything he has gone through previously making him confident and wise beyond his years. He's only a teenager, but many regard him as a fully formed, fully developed adult. But life in the city shreds his physical health. At 16, with all of his work keeping him stuck behind a desk, his muscles atrophy, his lungs grow short-winded, and in the winter of 1882 to 1883, Bernard falls deathly ill. He's convinced that he has consumption, just like his mother, and simply waits to die. As young Bernard lies in his bed, barely able to breathe, he doesn't blame his father for abandoning him or God for giving him this sickly body. He blames himself. He knew the failing hand he was given and he let his body deteriorate. With the little strength he has left, Bernard picks up his hand. He clenches it into a fist. He punches himself in the chest again, again, and again. He makes a vow. If he survives, he will sculpt his body into a mold of perfection so heavenly it would make Hercules jealous. The next morning, Bernard opens his eyes. He's still alive. Every fitness figure has their own creation myth, the narrative they tell themselves and their followers, how they found the value of physical fitness, how it saved their lives. Well, this moment is Bernard's creation myth. It's his rock bottom as he survives death once more and vows to never let his physical health wane again. He will live for his mother, for himself, and in spite of everyone who ever doubted him. It's here in St. Louis in the 1880s that a teenage Bernard finds his passion in life, his first and only true love, physical culture, the catch-all term to describe the fitness craze that came from immigrants from Western Europe, training their bodies to be as big and strong as possible. Bernard stumbles upon the Missouri Gymnasium, a building filled with posters of impossibly large and strong men, and real men, mostly German immigrants, lifting heavy weights in an attempt to become the men in those posters. Bernard is mesmerized. As he envisions his face and the bodies of these titans, he realizes that this is what he wants to be. And it's what he always will be for the rest of his life. He can't afford a membership to the gym yet. Its initiation fee is a steep $15. But he's able to procure some secondhand dumbbells and a few pamphlets of exercises he can do. Bernard is hooked. He can't get enough. He works out every single day, multiple times a day, pushing himself further and further. He carries weights with him when he walks. With every painful flex, he's one step further from the haunting black cloud of an early death. He stops wearing shoes in an effort to toughen his feet up and live more naturally. He wears hats with holes in them so his, quote, brain can breathe, a habit he actually keeps up for his entire life. 
He adopts the notion of survival of the fittest as gospel and relies on the work of authors in the burgeoning field of physical culture to guide him. Works like William Blakey's How to Get Strong and Stay So, or Sylvester Graham's Writings on Vegetarianism. And yes, this is the Sylvester Graham who invented the graham cracker. He eats only raw vegetables, drinks fresh milk, and begins experimenting with extreme fasting diets to stay lean and muscular. Bernard looks to find work dealing with this new passion of his. He gets a job as the physical director at Marmaduke Military Academy, a boys' boarding school in St. Louis that's founded in order to, quote, unite careful scholastic training with physical vigor and moral tone. In particular, Bernard takes pride in coaching the football team and playing for it as well. Academic athletics were a bit loose with their rules in those days, so the very much adult Bernard was able to play quarterback for his team of 14-year-old boys and lead them to countless wins and incredible plays, including one 6-6 tie against the University of Missouri. McFadden also develops his skills as a promoter and a showman in St. Louis. A master of Greco-Roman-style wrestling, he amasses a small fortune putting on wrestling matches and fighting in pretty much all of them, beating out champions from across the country, many of them twice his size. The business gives him exactly what he's looking for, physical competition and a stage on which to be noticed, admired, and wanted. And then, in 1893, a 25-year-old Bernard sees what the fitness world has to offer outside of Missouri. It's the Chicago World's Fair. It's the most spectacular thing this young, lonely man from Missouri has ever seen. The electric sidewalk, the peristyle, the Ferris wheel, all manner of incredible inventions and ideas brought here for Bernard to find. He sees the world-famous strongman, Eugen Sandow, a man twice his size and twice his musculature, and he meets up with an old friend, Alexander Whitley, who has opened up a business selling exercise equipment. With Bernard's growing reputation in the field of physical culture, Whitley signs Bernard on to endorse and sell the equipment. He spends the summer selling equipment in Chicago and building himself in nice savings. Not bad for an orphan boy no one wanted. But still, Bernard wants more. He believes he deserves more. Maybe it's all the people in his past who told him he was worthless, who abandoned him, who neglected him and starved him. Maybe it all pushes him to want to prove himself stronger better, more worthy of being loved and wanted than anything else. And after Chicago, Bernard, now in his late 20s, goes where everyone goes to prove that they can make it. New York City. With a comfortable living selling exercise equipment, Bernard furthers his reputation by becoming a personal trainer to the stars and the Big Apple. But money isn't really enough for Bernard. As we've mentioned, he doesn't just want wealth. He is a true believer in the gospel of physical culture. And while many New Yorkers, and Americans everywhere, are casually interested in fitness, his more radical ideas are all rejected. Now, before we go any further, we should talk a little bit about these radical ideas. Because, to be honest, it's impossible to understand Bernard McFadden without understanding the things he believes. And they were, to put it nicely, eccentric. Among his steadfast beliefs, here's a quick hits list of some of his favorites, roughly from least radical to most dangerous. Alcohol, tobacco, and drugs are a scourge to society and should be eradicated. Prudishness and modesty are useless. We are given our bodies for a reason and shouldn't be ashamed of them. Corsets kill women. White bread kills everyone. Meat is poison for the body. Prepared foods are poison for the body. Generally speaking, all food is poison for the body. And the best way to live long and cure disease is to starve yourself. 
If a person must eat, they should only consume raw, natural vegetables, unseasoned and uncooked, with as much fresh milk as possible. Walking is the best exercise a person can do, and one should strive to walk at least 20 miles per day, barefoot if possible. And finally, vaccines are evil and unnecessary and harm the body, as is pretty much all Western medicine in general. Now, some of these ideas you might be familiar with. There are people that believe some of this today, and some of them even have some real science behind them. Looking at you, nutrition-void white bread, but all food is poison? At this point, you might be saying, so what? This guy's a little quirky. Jason and Carissa, don't you normally talk about serial killers and genocidal maniacs on this podcast? So yeah, this guy has some bizarre theories about food, but he's no Bell Gunnis. He's not even a James McClintock. Well, that is a valid point. But what makes Bernard McFadden so dangerous is he's just so darn magnetic and charismatic, making his hazardous ideas so irresistible. But not yet, at least. The truth is, at the turn of the 20th century, America simply isn't willing to listen to any of this just yet. So, a 29-year-old Bernard takes his message on the road in 1897. And Bernard's message is well-received in London, where folks are delighted by his feats of strength and general eccentricity. They grow to love Body Love McFadden, as he names himself. He makes many return trips to London over his lifetime, a place where he truly feels accepted and where he goes to find reassurance and praise. He'll even find a wife there, but we'll get to that. The most important thing that this 1897 trip to London does for Bernard is convince him that his message is still worth delivering to the people. Despite America's seeming unwillingness to hear it, Bernard McFadden believes his fear of food and medicine is saving lives. And he knows exactly how to get the message out. He's going to publish a magazine. In 1899, Bernard McFadden, now 31, founds Physical Culture Magazine, putting out the first six issues, largely on his own, working through the night six days a week. The magazine is amateurish, to put it nicely, but one thing McFadden never lacks is passion. And over time, his passion project does find an audience. He sells 5,000 copies of the premier issue in March 1899, 10,000 in the October issue, by January 1900, he's selling 25,000 copies per issue. The interest in those first issues helps McFadden boost exerciser sales, which in turn helps him fund the magazine. It's a labor of love, but not one that's gaining financial momentum. Trusting his probably well-toned gut, McFadden leans on his own editorial content to spice up the magazine and boost sales. And to his credit, it works. People love the salacious, sensationalized voice that he lends to his work, even if his theories and opinions are a bit out there. For example, when President McKinley is assassinated in 1901, Physical Culture publishes an editorial blaming not the assassin nor his bullets, but the president's doctors for feeding him a slice of white bread dipped in beef juice too soon after the shooting. May God forgive the fools, he writes. Another martyr to the cause of medical experimentation. The magazine features articles from promoters of vegetarianism, fruitarianism, naturopathy, osteopathy, fasting, anti-vaccination, bodybuilding, and in the case of one eccentric Spanish count who writes an article, the value of a, quote, grass-only diet in preventing nervous breakdowns and stomach troubles, but only if the blades were, quote, well-masticated. 
just about the only thing that you couldn't find in physical culture was anything studied by scientists or practiced by medical doctors. This is a refrain we hear a lot from Bernard McFadden. Perhaps it came from his own near-death experience as a child with his botched smallpox inoculation. Or maybe it grows from his anger and grief over the doctor's inability to save his mother. Whatever it is, Bernard McFadden hates the mainstream medical community with a passion. And his efforts to promote alternative medicine and health practices is a war he'll fight to his last day on Earth. As the readership for physical culture grows, so does Bernard McFadden's business. He hires a full staff, including prolific writer John W. Coriel, whom McFadden depends on for some time. His profits grow to $90,000 in 1902 and 1903, about half a million dollars today. He moves his offices up to the Townsend Building at 25th and Broadway, though he still insists on walking to work barefoot and in tattered clothes. Things are looking up for Bernard McFadden in a big way. Then, like so many of our scoundrels, mm, he gets cocky. He believes his own myth. He drinks his own Kool-Aid, so to speak. Though, of course, Bernard would never drink Kool-Aid if he knew what it was. And he decides that for his first big move, he's going to do the one thing he's wanted to do his entire life. Take on the mainstream American medical community. He founds a, quote, healthatorium dedicated to proving his boldest claim yet. He will cure, without charge and without mainstream medical practices, people suffering from chronic illnesses like asthma, consumption, rheumatism, and cerebral palsy, to name a few. He opens up a second building on Long Island and opens the Physical Culture Restaurant in New York's Bowery neighborhood, with the express intent on bringing his own dietary methods to working-class people. Besides being so dangerous as to likely shave years of life off patients who would have been better served by actual medicines of the time, the venture is a financial disaster for McFadden, and it does little to prove his theories correct. His Long Island Healthatorium closes after only seven months. Still, he will not be deterred. In his mind, bringing the gospel of physical culture to the people is worth any price, even at the price of making some powerful enemies. In 1905, a 37-year-old Bernard begins promoting a physical culture show at Madison Square Garden, where the bodies of some of the world's fittest men and women are put on display, including a beauty contest to find the most physically fit woman in the city. The event attracts massive attention, including the attention of Anthony Comstock, leader of the Society for the Suppression of Vice. While McFadden and Comstock likely agree on the evils of alcohol, McFadden has no desire to legislate other people's lives. He proselytizes and tries to reach them, of course, but if someone wants to die an early death by imbibing, Bernard says that's their business. Anthony Comstock disagrees with that point of view. He believes it is his duty to bring the city and the country out of immorality and into a life of purity. And what McFadden sees as a celebration of the human body, Comstock sees as lewd pornography. He has McFadden arrested for circulating obscene pictures of the, quote, beauty contests winner from the previous year. Still, McFadden will not be deterred. He sees the overflowing crowds that were dispersed as evidence that, quote, the American people are awakening to the benefits of physical culture. And he sees Comstock not as a problem, but as an opportunity, a villain he can direct his readers' vitriol at and stir up even more business. And McFadden is right. That's exactly what it does. Physical Culture magazine thrives, which allows McFadden to continue his risky attempts to bring physical culture to the masses. He builds Physical Culture City in New Jersey, 
a sort of Disney world for meatheads. Well, vegetarian meatheads? Bringing 200 hardy and dedicated followers to build a utopian society in his image. And though Physical Culture City can only be regarded financially as another abject failure, it does accomplish what McFadden wants it to. It brings him to the national forefront of the physical culture conversation. He meets other big names in the field. John Henry Kellogg, founder of the serial empire. Upton Sinclair, the famous muckraking author. Ellen White, high priestess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. With growing support, he continues his crusade, even publishing McFadden's Encyclopedia of Physical Culture, a five-volume reference collection that he hopes will become the most revered text on natural health. It covers everything from dietary recommendations to exercise regimens, to his own views on disease, based on psychocultopathic study, a term he absolutely made up himself. And yes, you do hear the word cult right there in the middle, though who knows how Freudian that slip is. The final volume even included his strange views on sexual intercourse. For example, he believes that sex is not for pleasure or romantic love, but to achieve a higher purpose, creating the most perfect physical specimens possible. This is one of those times when you hear something and go, did that just cross a line for me? <laughs> oh yes, yes it did. While many of McFadden's beliefs can be relegated to the realm of eccentricity and silliness, there are some that cross the Rubicon into danger. And McFadden's theories here are a part of that. He is a fan of eugenics. And though it has long since been debunked, he continues to operate under the belief that we as humans need to prevent the reproduction of those who are unfit for parenthood. And we just want to take a second to say that while we might find lots of what McFadden got into silly, we should keep in mind how even the most bizarre ideas can gain traction with the right fanatical salesman. As it turns out, his more radical ideas do start to catch up to him. His legal fights against obscenity charges leave him nearly bankrupt. And as he tries to recoup losses through public speaking opportunities and hawking his magazine, his estranged first wife, Marguerite, that's okay, we didn't mention her because even he forgot she existed, resurfaces to file what shapes up to be an ugly public divorce. And to top it off, Anthony Comstock, the man who got Bernard arrested for obscenity, resurfaces in 1912 to wage more war on him. With pressure mounting, McFadden retreats to the place he feels most accepted. In the fall of 1912, McFadden, now 44, quietly transfers his stock holdings to his treasurer, slips into Canada, and then he arrives in England. The respite is much needed. Despite his exercise and diet regimen, the stress is getting to McFadden, and he's able to recover his health back in London. He's also able to recover something else. Love. Having been alone for quite some time, though not entirely, as reports indicate that McFadden's libido is unnaturally high for most of his life, Bernard McFadden decides that it's time to settle down and find the perfect wife. And by perfect, he means physically perfect. The ultimate paragon for female fitness and health. Bernard quickly announces the contest for Great Britain's Perfect Woman, 100-pound cash prize. 500 women from all around Great Britain send photographs of themselves to McFadden, but his eye is caught by one young woman from Yorkshire, 19-year-old Mary Williamson, a swimming champion who has twice finished the 15-mile race down the Thames. She is summoned to London to immediately meet with McFadden, who is even further delighted to learn that she has never been vaccinated. It's kismet. Mary Williamson is quickly declared the winner of the contest and accompanies him on a tour of the UK. 
And it's on this tour that the two fall in love. Mary is taken with his personality, his charm, his confidence, and showmanship. They marry in secret. Britain's perfect woman is a better crowd draw if people believe she's single, McFadden muses. But by the tour's end, Mary is very obviously pregnant, and the couple make their marriage public. Along with Mary executing a perfect 60-foot swan dive off the top platform of a pier in Brighton, with child. Mary gives birth to their daughter, Bernice. As Bernard holds the newborn child in his arms, he is not charmed by her little frail features. He's frightened by them, by their vulnerability. Frail equals weakness equals death. This child is an extension of him, and it will not be weak. Which brings us back to the beginning. On that fateful night in 1912, Mary watches in horror as her new husband grabs their newborn child and violently dunks it in an ice bath to toughen her up. One can only imagine the sheer terror both Mary and the child experience as direct victims of Bernard's childhood scars, his insecurities, and his traumas, each dunk more petrifying than the last. Little Bernice survives that night, but next time, somebody might not be that lucky. But the fact that the child survives gives Bernard all the evidence he needs to further verify his abusive theories and calcify his hubris, allowing even more madness to ensue. Case in point, while Mary is sick during one of her pregnancies, Bernard forces her to fast against her will to, quote, kill the disease, a decision that nearly costs Mary her life and the life of the child. He believes in the free will of other people to not follow his lifestyle, even if he disagrees, but to Bernard, his family is an extension of his own body, and they will not disobey him, even if it means possible death. And that immovability, eventually, will be his undoing. But as McFadden lives in Europe with Mary and Bernice, the United States is turning upside down. The uptight Victorian culture he fled from is loosening up. People are ready for change. An increasingly progressive Teddy Roosevelt, a man whom McFadden admires immensely, is running for re-election. It seems that by not fighting his war, Bernard McFadden has started to win it, and he decides to pack up his family and finally return home. It's 1915. Bernard moves his family to Long Island and resumes his work at the physical culture offices. But by 1916, the magazine is suffering from an identity crisis. In Bernard's absence, it's become almost exclusively a magazine for women, and McFadden tries to inject more of his own masculine virility into the pages. The result is a hodgepodge mess of a magazine that readers can't make heads or tails of. But after a brief struggle for power, McFadden regains full control of physical culture and goes back to basics. The female focus is retained, but the softness the magazine had in the last several years is jettisoned. From McFadden's usual brusque, controversial tone, and sales pick back up. But even as McFadden pilots physical culture towards success, it isn't enough. His family is growing, he's still paying off legal debts and recovering from his various failed schemes at healthatoriums and utopian cities. And in 1917, the United States is on the brink of war. But it's in that tension that a brilliant idea emerges that will change American journalism and culture forever. He publishes new magazine and newspaper titles such as True Romances, Dream World, Brain Power, True Ghost Stories, True Detective, yes, that True Detective, Photoplay, even a short-lived magazine about motherhood and childhood titled Just Babies with the partnership of one Eleanor Roosevelt. 
The most controversial new magazine he starts is one called The Graphic, nicknamed The Pornographic by its detractors. It takes the loose integrity of true stories to another level and exemplifies what will become known as tabloid journalism. Aside from the legacy he leaves in physical culture, this is perhaps one of Bernard McFadden's longest-lasting marks he makes on American society. The ruthlessness with which the tabloid attacks celebrities, publishes gossip, and prints outright lies is unlike even the sensational, facts-avoidant journalism of the time. And despite ceasing publication by 1932, journalists still discuss the negative effects his magazines left on the institution of the press today. Still, McFadden's business grows. His offices occupy a full floor now, with space for a private gym, of course, where McFadden often takes breaks to wrestle friends and employees on his personal wrestling mat. After more than 20 years, McFadden has finally done it. He's become the national fitness spokesman he's always dreamed of. He's as influential as anyone in the field, and he basks in the attention, making radio appearances, parading his wife and daughters, affectionately called the McFaddenettes, for public appearances. He enjoys audiences with presidents and politicians and is beloved by his fans, especially by bodybuilders, after McFadden features bodybuilding godfather Charles Atlas on the cover of a 1921 issue headlined, Building the Physique of a Greek God. Body Love McFadden, as he's called, has arrived on the national stage. But as we have learned in the past, all good things must come to an end. Quietly, Mary and Bernard's marriage has been falling apart for some time. What started as a few strange and radical incidents, dunking baby Bernice in the bathtub, forcing Mary to fast while pregnant, have become daily indignancies and abuses suffered by Mary and her children. Bernard justifies it all with his eugenicist belief that his family is physically and genetically superior to any other, but his behavior continues to cross lines. He erects a statue in the family dining room of his 12-year-old daughter's nude body, another choice that disturbs and alienates Mary and the kids, and I'm sure the neighbors when they come over for tea. But perhaps the final straw comes when Mary and Bernard's infant son, Byron, nicknamed Little Billy, suffers a seizure in 1922 while the family is in Boston. Mary wants to call the doctors. Bernard forbids it. He has a different plan, and besides, his methods have gotten him this far— Instead of calling the doctor, he insists that they dunk the 11-month-old baby into a bathtub filled with scalding hot water. Mary is horrified by the idea, but how can she say no to Bernard McFadden, the man the world celebrates for his prowess and health wisdom? As Bernard grabs the child and dunks him in water so hot it nearly burns his hands, it's difficult to know what he's thinking. Maybe he's seeing the faces of the young boys pointing at him and calling him a weakling. Maybe it's images of his father, storming out of the small Missouri shack, choosing whiskey and gambling over him. Maybe it's the sight of his mother wasting away in bed, riddled with delirium. All we know is Bernard McFadden, the man who changed his first name to sound like that of a lion's roar, is not going to let his son be meek. And with literally zero scientific evidence, Bernard is convinced with absolute certainty that boiling hot water will help his ailing child live and one day be strong, like him. It doesn't. Today, we know that many childhood seizures are brought on by fever. So dunking Billy in a bathtub of hot water is one of the worst things that Bernard could have done. Mary screams, sobs, begs for them to call a doctor for Bernard to see reason. But he will not. Billy dies 
in his mother's arms. Mary is numb. She can no longer love the man who killed her son. To deal with the family's grief, Bernard forces his family to walk miles upon miles per day through the winter streets. And in fact, he sends the children home and forces he and Mary to walk from Boston to New York City in the winter. Is this the only way Bernard knows how to deal with grief? After all, physical fitness was how he escaped his traumatic childhood, lifting and walking and running and wrestling his way past his loss. Is this yet another attempt to simply outpace his grief? One day, Mary catches Bernard scribbling something on a piece of paper while they're out walking. A few days later, she sees what he was writing. Bernard publishes an op-ed in the next physical culture blaming Mary for the death of their son, claiming that her, quote, dangerous care of Billy was what led to his end. Dangerous care, like wanting to feed him, keep him warm and nurture and love him. Bernard does take some responsibility, though. He says he let his wife make Billy weak. Mary and Bernard's marriage is never the same after that article is published. Then, another daughter of theirs dies from a rare heart condition, and Bernard's response forever seals his fate with Mary. It's better she's gone, he says. She only would have disgraced me. Fed up with McFadden, Mary moves herself and the children out of their shared home and reaches a tentative separation agreement. Tensions come to a head in 1933. The Great Depression ravages the 65-year-old McFadden's business, leaving the family in precarious times. And rumors of financial impropriety, as well as Bernard's refusal to pay the sum of what they agreed to in their last separation agreement, forces Mary to sue Bernard, accusing him of manipulating the stock prices of their company to minimize the amount he had to pay her. Also among the accusations are those of infidelity, as Bernard's dalliances were fairly known around the office, including one with a secretary who he briefly had move into his and Mary's home. Bernard countersues Mary, claiming infidelity of her own, though these accusations are all likely fiction. He cites a Swedish nobleman named Baron Rosencrans as Mary's suspected lover, a man who was in fact dead at the time McFadden accuses him of sleeping with his wife. Eventually, Bernard folds and pays Mary what he owes her, and their strange non-marriage continues. Despite all of this, Bernard McFadden continues to spend like he's still on top of the world. He funds a boys' military academy that aims to mold young men in his image. He opens a hotel with the express intent of offering guests a, quote, psychocultopathic rehabilitation. And he starts countless other health programs, pushing his anti-medicine, anti-doctor, anti-food agenda. And they all have one thing in common. They all lose money. Maybe McFadden is embarrassed. Maybe he doesn't want to admit defeat. Maybe he's delusional and can't see the danger in wasting his fortune and his reputation this way. Or maybe he simply doesn't care at all. After all, he's always said the mission is more important than the money. We're about to see how true that really is. Bernard McFadden is a man who loves structure. For himself, yes, but even more so for the people around him. Maybe it's his coping mechanism for the constant abandonment he experienced as a child an attempt to ensure that no one would ever leave him again. But that need for order, for structure, it's transformed into a dangerous and unsettling need for obedience. And he finds kinship in that feeling, across the Atlantic, in the Italian fascist Benito Mussolini. It's an odd friendship, but McFadden and Mussolini meet several times, and they do have a lot in common. They both believe in the need for order and a strong authoritarian leader. They both love attention, 
and they both love physical culture. McFadden even hosts a cadre of Mussolini's young military cadets at one of his facilities in America to train them in his psychocultopathic methods. And maybe it's his proximity to political power. Maybe it's to distract himself from his marriage and family falling apart. Maybe he knows he's losing his publishing empire thanks to some questionable decisions, and also a penchant for dipping into company funds for his personal expenses, which Mary McFadden will ultimately divorce him for and which does eventually lose him his company and his fortune. Or maybe he's always had this vision to begin with, but it's around this time that Bernard McFadden decides to try his hand at something new, politics. McFadden runs for the U.S. Senate in Florida in 1940. He nearly wins the right to a runoff, but eventually is blown out by career politician Jerry Carter. So he runs for New York mayor in 1944 at 84 years old. He doesn't win that either. And as if the two losses weren't enough of a signal, he runs for president. I'll give you one guess as to how it turns out. Here's a hint. Google American presidential portraits and see if any of them are standing on their head shirtless while holding a barbell. Bernard doesn't know it. And even if he does, he won't admit it. But this is the beginning of the end. Mary has divorced him. His children barely speak to him. His impropriety with the Physical Culture Publishing Company leads to criminal investigations, as well as a coup of editors, employees, and board members that pushes him out of his company for good. Once with a net worth of over $30 million, a paragon of physical health, and a force to be reckoned with, Bernard McFadden is broke, sickly, and alone. A familiar place for him, though not a pleasant one. McFadden desperately clings to relevancy, trying anything and everything to not be alone, not to be forgotten like he was as a child. He marries again in 1948 to 44-year-old Johnny Lee McFadden, a woman just about half of his age. The marriage lasts four years, until Johnny has it annulled in 1952. This is the same year in which Mary McFadden's tell-all book, Dumbbells and Carrot Strips, is published. And while some of what Mary writes in it might be more a conjuring of her animosity toward her ex-husband, much of it is the truth. And that truth irreparably damages the myth about himself that Bernard has worked so hard to cultivate. Bernard's health begins to decline. Those still around him try to help, but he refuses it all. He won't see doctors, and he won't take medication. True to his lifelong beliefs, he attempts to cheat death with a rigorous regimen of starvation, exercise, and self-determination. In 1955, he develops a urinary tract infection and again refuses to seek treatment. This time, Body Love McFadden has taken on more than he can handle. He dies on October 12th, 1955, at the age of 87. For me, Bernard McFadden is something like Walter White from Breaking Bad. He's doing something harmful, sure, but he does it out of misguided but well-meaning intentions. And at first, you can kind of sympathize with his plight. I mean, the kid had a horrifying childhood. He came from literally nothing to be a multimillionaire with a publishing empire. But somewhere along the way, he becomes the villain of his own story. His obsession with being great, being healthy, being strong, pushes everyone away. It even costs the lives of some of the people close to him. He becomes corrupted by the very thing that saved him. So let's revisit our initial question. Why did Bernard McFadden become what he became? The short answer is that he is the embodiment of overcorrection. In order for Bernard to have survived his childhood physically and psychologically, he needed to create his own rules to live by. 
for the rules that were passed on to him by abusive authority figures only brought suffering, sickness, pain, and disappointment. Becoming a man of steel is something that Bernard McFadden always dreamt of. For the first time in his life, he would become invulnerable. Try as you might, you could never hurt him the way he was hurt as a child. And to some extent, it worked. The only problem is when you become a man of steel, all your emotions become steel too. Your pride, your stubbornness, you become blind to the truth. And that's exactly what happened here. So next time you go to the gym, think of poor Bernard McFadden, the man who helped popularize physical culture in the world. Just don't forget to eat food after. Unless, of course, it's white bread. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Jeremy Novick. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. <laughs> 